things. One, I, I pray and I hope to hold out Jesus to you in such a way that you would see him and that you would believe in him. And so my first hope and prayer, I don't know many of you, but I just want to hold out Jesus in a way that if you do not believe in him, that today he would break through whatever barrier that has been and that today you would believe in him. And my other prayer is that those of us who have seen him and believe to him to be who he says he, would, he is, that we would embody our faith. Those two things. That we would believe in Jesus and embody that faith in Jesus. Those are my two hopes. And I was grateful to be invited with those two things mattering deeply to me to, to do it with James. Because James helps us in a particular way do both of those things. To believe in Jesus, which some people would say, ah, is this a gospel that holds out the gospel? But really to be practical about our faith and to embody it. Those two things... James sets us up for it. And so without taking too much time, I think it's important to understand how he's helpful and why he's helpful, why this epistle, this letter written to the churches is helpful. And so first, who wrote it? Remember, the first goal is that you would believe in Jesus. James didn't. And I think that's the first thing that I want to hold out this morning. And you may have already covered this in the weeks prior, but I find that extraordinarily helpful and encouraging to somebody like me. James, people say he's Jesus' brother, brother-in-law, cousin. Mitch can help you sort out who's right on that argument. But here's what we do know. This person who wrote this letter grew up with Jesus had intimate knowledge with Jesus, saw Jesus, knew Jesus at a familial type level. He knew Jesus deeply and he didn't believe that he was who he said he was. In fact, we have scriptural evidence that James actually said he's crazy and tried to suppress his family member or close friend intimate relationship from looking crazy and getting the whole family in trouble. So James, the, the writer of this letter, who is the leader of the Jerusalem church. Remember when the commission went that you would preach the gospel and it would go first to where? Jerusalem and then Judea and then the ends of the earth. So the white hot center of the birth of Christianity, this writer is at the center. He's leading the church that was the, the breakout movement that happened among a Jewish people He's writing, this is the earliest writing in the New Testament that we have. And it's written by somebody who didn't believe in Jesus until he was confronted. The scripture says that the Lord appeared then to James. And it was a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus that moved James from being someone who, who rejected and resisted Jesus' claim that he was the Messiah. Why did he do that? Well, because he had expectations of who the Messiah was going to be, what he was going to look like. And it wasn't that he didn't believe in God or he didn't hope for a Messiah, but he looked at Jesus, he knew him really well, and he was like, you certainly aren't it. I was looking for someone else. And that powerful skepticism persisted his entire life until Jesus appeared to him post-resurrection. And then James became not only so convinced that he would throw himself into the work of preaching the gospel, 
but that James would die, the, the historian Eusebius says, being thrown from the top of the temple. Just, just imagine that for a second, because it's, it, it's so good for us. Anybody grow up a skeptic or have friends, family who are skeptics? Even grew up in the church. I want to believe. I hear this claim, but I just don't know that I know. When I read James, I'm so grateful to know he didn't believe until it was Jesus appearing to him. It was the person of Jesus that he saw post-resurrection. And his faith went from, I reject this claim, to you cannot, even at the fear of death, cause me to reject this claim. Isn't that extraordinary? So if you're a skeptic in the room... The only caution I would have for you is you may lead a church someday. <laughs> what, will, what will move us from here to here? I will simply say this. It's only Jesus. The, the appearance of the risen Jesus. That's why I say I hope to hold out Jesus to you today. Not so that I can, with some clever argument, convince you to believe in this giant, massive tome called Christianity and the church and all. No, I just want to hold out Jesus and let Jesus be who he claims to be. And it's his appearing. It's when we see him for who he is that he does something. But he will take a skeptic and make them the, the bishop of the Jerusalem church. And what they actually said, what they did when they were going to kill James, is they brought him to the top of the temple. The Jewish, the Jewish leaders bring him into the temple and they say, you have, you have been talking, and this is all in Eusebius' work, so we actually have historical documents that tell us the story. They take him to the temple and they say, listen, you've been advocating for Jesus as the gate, the narrow gate even is what they say. You keep saying that. And you need to stop saying that because it's leading people astray to follow Jesus. And so stop saying that he's the narrow gate. And he says, I can't do that. And they say, we're going to bring you to the top of the temple in front of all the people so that they can hear you say that. We're going to put you on CNN, Fox News, whatever the media source that you draw from. We're going to give you the biggest mic we can give you, which is the top of the temple. And we want you to say he's not who he claims to be. Stop saying he's the narrow gate. And this person who had grown up with Jesus and said, I don't believe he is who he said he is, and then became convinced after the resurrection that surely he is the Son of God, surely he is the Messiah, is brought up to give a public denouncing of the faith. And he says, I can't do that. And they get so mad, they say, we've made a mistake by bringing you now in front of the people. We're complicit because we've amplified your, your nonsense. And we have to cast you down. So they push him off the temple the, the, the top of the temple to kill him he doesn't die so they stone him and finally somebody says don't stop you have to stop this because he took the posture of Stephen and was praying for the people stoning them he didn't die when he fell and this person comes and says stop stoning him and somebody finally hits him with a club and kills him and he's buried in that spot wow right wow wow if you're a skeptic, I just tell you this. Don't look to the left or the right. First, it's okay to be a skeptic. James, who we're going to draw from today, was a skeptic until his adult life. So it's okay. Ask your questions. Wrestle with it. Don't be ashamed of it. James wasn't. 
and know that where you're going to find an answer to this longing and to this persistent question, it's only going to be in the living Jesus. So look to him. Go find him. Ask him. Go right to him. Your shirt says Jesus. You can ask him just like that. Jesus, you, the risen one, it's who you claim to be. I want to know you. I want to move from being a skeptic and I want you to open my eyes so that I can see you. And I I will say this, ask him and seek and knock right at his door. Because it's only the life of Jesus and the love of God in Christ that can move a heart from here to here. But he can and he will. I find James's story personally incredible But it becomes incredibly powerful then when you think that he wrote this letter. This is the person who wrote this letter. And what's his hope in writing? First, who's he writing to? He's writing to Christians. Remember, Jerusalem, Judea, and then the ends of the earth. So he's writing to people who were of a Jewish religion, right? And then they became convinced, they too, like James, had become convinced that Jesus, who came from a Jewish background, so he is Jewish, and yet he's, he's, there's something else happening in Jesus. Jesus is opening our eyes to see that all of the law, all of the prophets, everything actually culminates in the fulfillment of the law in Christ. Wow, the gospel, right? And so these people begin to believe this, and you can imagine the difficulty of this. If the accepted religious posture is one way, and then one, two, three, four, five, ten of us start to follow this Jesus... You can feel as you leave the majority and you become part of the minority, you can feel the felt experience of that, right? Some of you have felt that when you began to believe in Jesus and your family said, I cannot believe that you would accept that. You may have had friends who said, are you out of your mind? And yet you became convinced, but you felt that felt experience. Well, this audience was experiencing that pressure. This is very early on. Again, earliest writing in the New Testament. It's just happening. There's not even established Gentile churches. It's just happening and breaking out. And so it's very uncomfortable if you've been a part of a majority Jewish population to then start to follow this Jesus. Very difficult. And so James is writing to encourage those people. And he's saying, you're facing particular things and I want to build you up in your faith. I want to pause really quick and do something that doesn't translate very well to video. But did you know that you have a context? What would you say to me? I just said, hey, these are Jewish people who had grown up in the Jewish tradition and they're converting to Jesus based on who he he claims to be and knowing after the resurrection that he is who he said he is. And they start to follow him. If you were to tell me who Redeemer City Church is and what you're facing, what would you say? How would you describe yourself? Would you say we are a largely Jewish congregation that has converted to Jesus? Would you say you are largely a Gentile, pluralistic, you know, post-secular? How would you describe yourself? Throw out some things that might describe Redeemer City Church. Now you can say, we're a lot of skeptics, a lot of well-educated people who have become convinced in the claims of Jesus. Who might you describe yourself to be? And what might you be facing? Take a shot at it. What do you think? Faithful? Thanks for saying it. 
What's that? Yeah. We're a believing, we're, we're a Christian congregation who's accepted the claim of Jesus and we're striving to be faithful. Say it again. Felt. Yeah, people who know not just the claim of Jesus, but the personal indwelling of the presence of God. I love that. Thank you. Resilient. Resilient. Say more about that. I love that. Thank you for saying it, right? We're Christians. We believe in Jesus. We're striving to be faithful. We know the very presence of God in our lives personally. It's not an abstraction. And we've been through some stuff. We're a resilient body. Why does that matter? Why do that exercise? Thank you all. But that's good for us to understand because James is about to be preached into that context which is a different context than their context, but you're facing things. And last week, Mitch asked the question. He, he, I love the question that James provoked in Mitch. He said, how am I doing? Anybody remember that question? And the force of that question was, some of us wonder sometimes, how am I doing in this life of following Jesus? Am I getting it right? In the life that I thought that I was going to live, how am I doing? And I just stop and ask that question. And I've been provoked to ask that question. You all are facing all sorts of different challenges. Economic challenges, cross-pressured cultural challenges, personal challenges. That is, that is the context in which we're going to hear the, this letter from James. And my hope this morning is that this would not just be history. Here's a guy named James. Here's why he wrote. Here's when he wrote. Here's what happened, which is important. But that we would not only get to that history part, but to that mysterious part where God works right here, right now. Let's read, picking up on where James was left off with this question, how am I doing? And we're going to ask a second question this morning. So I'm in chapter 2, verse 14. His letter continues, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith that has no deeds, can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was it not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled when it says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way was not Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent off was sent and sent them off in a different direction as a body without the spirit is dead. So faith without deeds is dead. All right. If, if we weren't sure why it was important to know why he was, who he's writing to, 
and what their context is, I hope it's maybe important now, because if you are a Christian congregation seeking to be faithful, who knows the very presence and indwelling of Jesus, then there might be some language there that should provoke a question in us when he says, you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. If Martin Luther was here, I might get tackled had Martin Luther not wrestled with this, right? Because Martin Luther's conviction is by grace alone, faith alone, right? Grace alone, faith alone. But wait, doesn't Paul preach that you are saved by grace through faith? And this is not of works, lest none of you should boast. So what do we have here? This intimate relational love with Jesus that has been convinced post-resurrection that he is who he says he is and he can do what he claims to do, risen. And now he's holding out this strong admonition to the church to say, hey, it's not justification by faith. What is he saying? If we don't have a grasp on why he's writing in the way he's writing and who he's writing to, this becomes not only not helpful, but it could be harmful. Because you could walk out those doors and go, okay, maybe I've believed wrongly and now it's up to me to demonstrate my works so that I can have an assurance of my faith. That is not what James is saying. And so we can go back and we can, we can, you can go, well, I hope not, but why would you, how do you have the confidence to say that's not? Because it sounds an awful light like what he's saying. Here's my, here's my confidence in preaching this, and here's why it's so important. Who's the letter written to? Jewish fill-in-the-blank. Jewish Christians, right? He starts the letter addressing them as people who believe. He calls them brothers. So right away, we have to start asking a different question. Because we go, hold up, who's he writing to? He's not writing to people he's trying to convince to believe in Jesus. He's writing to people who are already convinced. Okay, important, right? Super important. He starts the letter that way. He calls them brothers. He uses a term that is given to this congregation, so he sees them. And then he says this in chapter 2. You covered it last week. Chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. So the whole text that you just drew from last week, he starts that sentence saying, my brothers, an embrace of believers in Christ, and then he calls them believers. This is important. James is writing a letter to people who believe in Jesus. They're already a part of the family of God by grace through faith. There's no wall he can't kick down, door he, I can't get the words right. But he, it is not up to us. We can fully stand on Paul's preaching and what we know to be true that I didn't do it. He found me in my sin. Mitch preached the gospel this morning. He finds us as we are, and he does what we are not able to do in and of ourselves. Praise God. That's the gospel. That's the good news. James is not taking anything away that he is not adding a but fine print. He's adding a really powerful and. And I hope that we can hear what he's saying when he makes this and. Because he says, and I'm back in 14, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? You have faith, but he's saying, what good is it if we have this faith in Christ but we have no deeds? What good is it? Listen carefully to what he says next. 
Can such faith save him? What are we talking about? What James is saying when he says, can such faith save him? I think cuts right to the heart of where many of us are at right now in our context. What he's, James is militantly working against abstraction. Against this disembodied form of faith that kind of floats out here as a label and a title that then stops being thought about. Stops being pursued. Stops being hungered for and thirsted for. A faith that says, oh yeah, sure, I believe in the claims of Jesus, absolutely. That brings me into the family of God, full stop, don't need to think about it again. I can go about my pursuits in the world, with my family, with everything else that I'm facing, and I, that matter is settled. And on a salvific level, are you adopted into the family of God? Are you given the gift of new life in Christ because you believe who he, he claims to be, and you simply say, I am poor in need of your life? Yes, absolutely. Such faith will justify you, set you free from the penalty of sin. You are free, and you are free indeed if the Son sets you free. Praise God. That's the gospel, right? And can such faith save you? The word sozo, can the word, can such faith heal you? Can your confession that, he, that you need the justification of a God who loves you and will give his own life to forgive you from the penalty of sin? Yes. Can that, does that save you? Oh, yes. Praise God. Thief on the cross. Not my works. Only by the grace of God. Yes. And can that claim save you, deliver you into the freedom and fullness of everything that God has for your life after you make that confession if you never nurture that faith. James is saying, yes, you can be saved, and no, that faith can't deliver you out of this habitual pattern of sinning that you have found yourself in. He's saying that, for that, you're going to need to actualize that faith. The faith has birthed in you a new thing, but if that thing is going to be brought to maturity, then that faith, you can't just sit there and wait for it to actualize. You have to participate with the power of God if you want to see God deliver. I've said it before here, right? In Brueggemann, a lot of people have said, God will get you out of Egypt, but he's not done. He wants to get the Egypt out of who? You! He can deliver you from sin and death by grace through faith. Praise God. He does that. Nobody can do that. God will deliver you from the penalty of sin and death. And he wants to deliver you from the power of sin and death. Come on. And for that, James is writing, can such faith save you? I think he's thinking back to his intimate life with Jesus. He's thinking back to stories and he's thinking back. If you, we don't have time this morning, but John 5 Jesus is walking along. He comes to a place, a pool, where people go for healing. There's a man, been a man who's been laying there in his condition for 38 years. He's been laying there for 38 years, and Jesus walks up, and he asks him this question that I want to ask you today. What do you want? What do you want? Mitch asked the question last week, how am I doing? How am I doing? Is my life being built upon this confession that Jesus is who he says he is? 
This morning I want to ask you the question, what do you want? Jesus asks this man, do you want to be healed? Here I am, the living God. You didn't come to me, I came to you. There's Paul. You didn't come to me. Jesus entered into this world and he walks right up to this man who's in his condition and he speaks to him by grace through faith. He didn't do any of that. He didn't earn it, didn't deserve it. Everything we just sang by grace through faith. And do you want to be healed? And do you want to be healed? And are you tired of your continual and habitual enslavement to pornography? Do you want to be healed? Do you want a way out of that? Do you want a way out of this perpetual cycle that I have to buy something on Saturday at 10 in the morning and I'm just bored and I'm starting to get anxious and shake because I don't know what to do? And I'm not speaking down to that. I deal with tremendous anxiety. And I know what it is to find myself with three unstructured hours and I go, okay. Right? Man, if I had a thousand bucks, I'd go buy a stereo, a record player that I really want. I would go buy tickets to the bucks. I would do, get me out of that. Do you want to be healed? Jesus walks right up to this man and he says, what do you want? Do you want to be healed? Because I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. I believe God, but no one will help me into the pool. Can such faith save you? Can such faith deliver you? What's Jesus say to him next? Get up and take your mat and do what? Walk. I hope that sent chills through your whole body. Because what Jesus is saying is, I have already birthed in you an indestructible power that is able to raise you from the very dead. So already been given to you. What do you want? What sin and death would you like me to deliver out of you? What sin and death are you ready to purge? And it's vile. It's, it, it, we know. I know my brokenness. The stuff I wrestle with and I go, I want it out of me. As if I could scrub out the inside of my bone marrow. My mom's dealing with a cancer diagnosis. And the doctors are talking about how it's in her bones. And it spreads in her bones. And as her son, I so want to go inside her bones and say, can I get that out of your bones? And Jesus says, I've delivered you from the penalty and power of sin. Or I've delivered you from the penalty of sin? Fully done. I'm here to deliver you from the power of sin. To get sin and death out of you. I've already gotten you out of the clutches of sin and death. Now I want to get the clutches of sin and death out of you. Do you want to be healed? What do you want this morning? And I'm preaching like this partially because I get to be invited and then you never have to invite me back. So there's there's a gift in that. Because I can, I can topple some sacred cows. I don't have to tread as carefully because I look at you and I go, I don't know. And so when I say things like pornography, addiction to spending, laziness, lethargy, fear, anxiety, depression, I'm naming everything that exists in me, first of all. So I know it probably resides somewhere in you. And I get to say, what do we, not I, but what do we want to be delivered from? And are we a congregation that actually is saying, we want such faith. We want such faith. 
that delivers us from the penalty of sin, but is at work delivering us and removing and getting us out of the power of sin, getting the power, the, the sin and death out of us. Do you want that this morning? I hope we do. And this is where James is, he's not into abstractions. He says, well, if you want such faith, then what do you do? If that's how it happens, then what am I to do? We'll go back to last week. Show favoritism to no one. You go, hold up. You just made this audacious claim that God's going to deliver the death and sin out of me. How's he going to do that by me not showing favoritism to someone else? And here's the crux of what I want to leave you with this morning. When James invites, he says, if you say to him, the person without clothes or food, if you say to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm, but does nothing about it, what good is it? I would submit to you that that has a twofold sword. What good is it to the person who leaves without a food or clothes or without food or clothes? Yes. But what good is it to you? Because I'm trying to deliver the sin and death out of you. I'm trying to get the Egypt out of you. I'm trying to get the incredible self-centeredness and narcissism out of you. I'm trying to get the part of you that's a racist or a bigot or a whatever it is, a fear monger. I'm trying to get that out of you. How do I get that out of you? Well, I just I sign a thing that says it's out of me. No, 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 no. It mean, you take your coat off and you give it to the person that provokes in you the thing that, you're, that God's trying to get out of you. Does that make sense? This is what he's saying. He's saying, get out of abstraction. James is brutal about it. Get out of abstraction. God wants to deliver you. He wants to get you out of sin and death, and he wants the sin and death out of you. How does he want you to actualize that? By following his commands. Obedience and deliverance have always been woven together in the scriptures. Obedience and deliverance always woven together. And so this morning, there's things that he wants to get out of us. He's going to get those things out of us by us walking out what he has worked in. Does that make sense? What's, can such faith save you? If you work out this thing that's been given to you with fear and trembling, I will pull out of you and get vomit up out of you all this sin and death. But you're going to have to follow me. And it's going to look like a cross. I'm going to ask you to give up these prejudices, give up these preferences, give up this, this flaming hot loose tongue that you have. I'm going to ask you to lay all of that down. And yes, it's for charity. Yes, it's for practicality. Yes, it's so that they will know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. But this is how I get the Egypt out of you. Whew. My prayer for myself, for us, that the reputation of Redeemer City Church would be a reputation that says, we want such faith. We want such faith. God, first of all, we're a confessional church. We don't try to hide it because that's exhausting and it's a lie. No, anyone who claims to be righteous, you're not. We're not. The deep brokenness exists in us and so part of the rest is to just simply confess that. But it's not to confess that and then lay there for 38 years. And it's not to confess that, lay there for 38 years and then go, I don't know, he never came and got it out of me. If Mitch would have come and taught that out of me, then we would have been fine. If Sunday school would have been structured differently, fine. But it didn't. No, Jesus is here today, the living God, walking amongst his churches. Same thing. Spirit of the living God. What do you want? 
Do you want to be healed? That requires a willingness to confess our sin. And not in the abstract, generalized, of course. But in the... I hate Democrats. Joe Biden drives me nuts. Donald Trump is Satan. Hillary Clinton is. I don't know. Pick your flavor, right? The enemy wants to put you in a lock any which way you can. Bucks fans, Pittsburgh fans, you, you tell me. FSU, LSU, you guys will hate each other over anything. Jesus says, it's the part of you that's so predisposed to hating each other that I want to get out of you. How do I get that out of you? If John asks me for my bag that my friend gave me, then I give him my bag. (sighs) I don't want to. But the living Jesus says, I'm trying to cut out of you this cancerous thing. Do you want to be healed? Then let me take it out of you. And it's not going to be an abstraction. It's going to be that right today, you delete your account. There's a guy who played in a rock band way back in the day. I'm old, so I won't even name the band. But he talks about, in his confession, getting to this point, he said he had to pour the cocaine down his toilet. And I met a man in Florida who had the same confession. He said, I literally, on hearing the preaching of the gospel, I wanted it out of me, this thing that had such power over me, and I went home and I poured all of my cocaine into the toilet. James would put an arm around that brother, and he would feel how hard it was to do that, and how shaking that man was and trembling when he was trying to work out this thing within him, and he would probably give him a holy kiss and embrace him and say, I want us to both be aware right now that this process is at work in us. That the same thing that's caused you to hold on to that is in me. And Jesus is asking us to let go of that stuff. He wants to get the sin and death out of us. Do we want to be healed? What do we want? And this morning, James says, a simple confession in the abstraction that Jesus is who he says he is, that is all... All you need to do is recognize who he is and he will baptize you with his gift of the Holy Spirit and save you by grace through faith. Praise God. And he immediately wants to get the sin and death out of you. And that will require obedience. Long obedience. Let's pray. Jesus, we're aware that here you are. You are the love between us. When two or more are here, here you are. You are here this morning. And our appeal is not to logic, it's not to reason, it's not to emotion. Our appeal is to you and your name. We praise you that we can confess that you are who you say you are. And if there's anyone in this place who's a skeptic, but today has heard your voice then we praise you that by simply acknowledging your voice and inviting you to give us your life, Lord, you will do that. We praise you for that truth that binds us together in your spirit. And now for us as Redeemer City Church, Lord, we invite you to get the sin and death out of us. 
Father, would you bring a holy conviction, Holy Spirit, right now in this room? I pray for a conviction of sin, of the sin and death that so easily ensnares us and habitually causes us to repeat the same cycles and the same brokenness and to hand them down from generation to generation. God, would you convict us first that it is there and not to be ashamed of, but to be set free from. Father, would you speak directly to those places and call us to hear and obey? This is what your living word is asking of us. Not that we would simply do these things, but that you would form and fashion your life in us. Show us today how to obey as a people, as a person, as individuals, and as a church family. God, would you convict us? Show us how to obey. Get the sin and death out of us for your glory and the good of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.